First Peter chapter two, verses four through 12, it says, and coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask your blessing upon your word this morning. May each of us be focused on what you would have for us on as, as we learn from this book that you wrote through Peter, how to live our lives in the world and the people that are around us every day. May we grow to understand you better. May we seek to serve you better. And may we always seek to honor and glorify you with, uh, every day as we go out or, uh, and, and away from, from our church family. And we give you the honor and the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I'm, I'm really glad I get to preach this. This is my favorite verses in all of 1 Peter. And I've actually preached through 1 Peter a couple of times. And I love this passage. It, it speaks, it's really the theme and the heart of what Peter is trying to get at with the book. And it speaks to who we are in Jesus Christ. And, and of course, we have to go all the way back to the beginning and think about where we've come from. Peter has started by, by reminding us of what a great salvation we have. Um, and, he, and he's continued that teaching by saying that because of that great salvation, God changes us from the inside and he gives us this, he, he changes us to be able to change our desires and our actions to reflect his holiness in the world. And then he, last week he ended that focus and, he, and he, as he continued that train of thought, he ended it in verse 3 by, by talking about how we need to long for the word of God. Because the word of God can change our life. And, and he ended verse 3 by saying, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So his last focus was on, we love the word of God that changes our life and we desire it more and more because we've seen what God is doing in our life. And now he continues his train of thought here by focusing on Christ and what God is doing in the world through those of us who know Jesus Christ and what he's doing in our lives that's going to show to the rest of the world. As we look at this passage, I think there's one thing that's going through Peter's mind 
as he's writing this passage because there's a key event in Peter's life. And I know as you look at this, it looks like there's a ton of scripture for today and we're only going to briefly hit on most of it. But that's because Peter here is so reflective of going back to other places in his life and in, and in the Old Testament that it's just there's a lot in these few verses, in these eight verses. But I think one thing in the back of Peter's mind as he's writing this is a key event that happened between him and Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 16, 18, we have, this, 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 um, we have the story of Jesus talking to Peter and, and they're having this conversation together. And in the most prophetic passage that Jesus tells to Peter, he comes to Peter and he says to him, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And it's interesting that, and, and he's using a play on words there. You've probably heard, you know, Peter is the Greek word for Petros. It's actually Aramaic and there's a whole different thing. But anyway, so he's using these two words for rock and he's basically telling Peter, God is going to use you to grow the early church. He's not telling him you're the first Pope and all this other stuff, but he is telling him God is going to use you as a foundation as a building block to grow his church after Christ's return to heaven. And so here, as Peter goes into this discussion, now he tells these other believers in basically the same words that Jesus used to him. He says, he tells them, and he, he goes back to the same thing that Jesus told him, that he's a rock that God is using to build his church. And so that's, that I think is what's behind Peter's thinking here as he, as he goes into this discussion of how Jesus Christ works in and through us to build the body of Christ. And so he starts here and he says, and coming to him, that's coming to Jesus as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Now, there, there are some commentators that have tried to say this isn't talking about Jesus and there's... There's some arguments that could be made either way, but, but I would say that logically there's no other really way to look at it than this is talking and saying that Jesus Christ is the living stone. And um, it seems obvious that he's talking about Jesus and it logically follows in Peter's train of thought because he's just ended verse 3 by saying that the kindness of the Lord and then and coming to him. And so it just logically makes sense there. There's not a whole lot of other way to take it. This is probably taken from Psalm 118.22, and we're going to come back to this verse as well. But in Psalm 118.22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And you can see that same idea here where it says, Coming to him as the living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Um, and I'm going to discuss this here. There's a lot of places where this passage kind of overlaps each other. So I'm trying to make a logical train of thought, but at the same time, it's going to come up again. Um, the cornerstone, when you think about building a building, the cornerstone is the stone that all the other stones in the building are laid off of. And, and especially in ancient building times where they didn't have some of the tools and stuff we have now, it was very important to put that stone perfectly in place so that every other wall could be straight. Every other, every other, um, Every angle could be correct, so everything was built off of that. 
There's also another way that it, cornerstone is used. And in our modern architecture, and even it actually has uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands of history behind it. If you look at a building today and you look at the cornerstone on a building, it's usually a ceremonial thing. And so it'll say on there that, you know, this building dedicated this day by this group of people or these people gave money to it or this this is this is the building that we built uh, at this particular time for this particular reason. And in both ways, Jesus fits the picture of the cornerstone. The church is not built on you or I. The church, literally, Jesus didn't tell Peter the church was built on him. That wasn't the conversation they were having, although some would probably try to say that. The conversation is Jesus Christ is who the church is built on. He's the cornerstone. And that cornerstone sets the what the church is. So the church is supposed to reflect Jesus Christ's holiness, his love, his perfection, None of us could do that because we don't accurately and totally reflect that. But Jesus Christ did. And so the church is built on Jesus Christ. And in the other way, when we think about a cornerstone that has a name written on it and a reflection and who they are, what is what is the church built on? It's built on Christ's death and resurrection for all of us. And that's what founded the church. And that's what we reflect back on. And so if you want to think of a cornerstone and Jesus being that cornerstone, it's his death and resurrection that is inscribed on that stone. But then he says, and coming to him is a living stone, which is rejected by men. What is he talking about there? What happened when Jesus Christ came to earth? Did everybody all of a sudden come and say, yes, Jesus is here. He's the Messiah. I accept him and it's wonderful. And we're all going to get along and he's going to save the world. and Everything's be great. That's not exactly what happened. He came to earth And at first, you know, there was, he had his followers and stuff. And even leading all the way up until the day, uh, the day, the week before his resurrection, he comes into Jerusalem and they're throwing down palm leaves and they're saying, hail, you know, Hosanna, king of the Jews. But because he wasn't the king they were expecting, he wasn't going to overthrow the Roman government. He wasn't going to go sit on a throne in Jerusalem. They rejected him and they killed him and they murdered him and they put him on a cross And so the religious leaders of the day despised Jesus to the point of stirring up the people to kill him. And then it says, the stone that has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. What happened? Jesus, God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Men tried to put him to death. They did put him to death. But God is stronger than men. And he said, that person you rejected, God in the flesh... He's my chosen one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that will save you from your sins. And so he raises him from the dead. He takes him back up into heaven to be with him. And we're going to come back to that thought here in the passage in just a few few minutes. Um, This is the same interpretation of the psalm. And the reason I say it's Psalm 118 Uh, remember I said Peter is great at drawing back in these Old Testament passages and pulling them constantly into the New Testament to show that Jesus Christ is fulfilling the Old Testament. And he's also showing that there's a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not a break in, in theme or in content. 
And so he comes up here and, and Jesus himself gave this same interpretation in Matthew 21, 42. Now you have to understand in Matthew 21, 33 through 46 that we're not going to read, there's a parable that Jesus is telling. And in this parable, Jesus says, you know, he, he has this vineyard and he says that the master of the vineyard sends his, his servants to go check on the vineyard and see how the growers are doing and collect the money and, you know, things like that. So the, the, the grower, the, the servants go back and they check on the vineyard and what happens? The people who are actually growing the vineyard kill the ser- they kill the servant. They don't kill the, they beat them up, they send them away. They and they're like, "Hey, we're this is our vineyard. You can't tell us what to do even though they don't own the vineyard. They're just taking care of it." So then he says, "Well, okay, well that's not going to happen again. I'm going to send my best servants to there." So he sends his best servants to there and once again they reject them. They get rid of them. And then finally the master says, "You know what? They rejected all those people." I'm going to send my own son to that vineyard and he'll put things straight and he'll tell them that they have to, you know, they have to uh, give me the, the money, the, 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 the fruit of this and all that. Well, he sends his son. What do they do to the son? They kill it. And the picture there is Jesus is, is pointing out, hey, I gave you the prophets. I raised up the nation of Israel to be a light in the world. You rejected that, and the nation of Israel rejected that too. I raised up the prophets. You rejected them. You didn't do what they wanted them to do. So ultimately now I'm sending Jesus Christ into the world, and ultimately you're going to reject him. And so Jesus Christ was foretelling his own death. And he says in Matthew 21, 42, he says, the stone which the builders reject, did you never read in scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. And so Jesus himself says the same thing here, that the reason Christ came was ultimately God sent him knowing that he was going to be rejected by men, but God had chosen him to build the church. Now, why is that important? Because he goes on in verse 5 here, and he says this. He says, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, all that foundation was laid by saying Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. But guess what? God brings each one of us who knows Jesus Christ to be a part of building up his church here on earth. Now, believe me, God doesn't need to use you. He doesn't need to use me. He is powerful enough that he could build whatever he wants to on earth without us. He could create a bunch of robots to just do exactly what he says, and he could have them look how he wants and do what he wants But instead, he chooses to come to each one of us who knows and believes in Jesus Christ and say, I want to use you to build my church, to build my kingdom, to be my body here on earth. And so Peter's argument here is you as living stones are being built up as part of this house. It's not just Jesus is the house. It's Jesus is the foundation And therefore, all that other stuff we've talked about, reflecting him in holiness, uh, living our lives grounded on the word, that's all because he is using you and he's using me to be a part of the work that he's doing here on earth. He says that we're a living stone. Now, in a lot of ways, if somebody told me that I was a stone or a rock... I don't know if that would be a good thing. In one way, you know, if I'm hardcore and I work out in the gym every day and somebody tells me I'm a rock, hey, that's great. 
But then on the other hand, if somebody tells me I'm a stone or a rock, that kind of means maybe I don't do anything. I'm lazy. Uh, you know, I don't really move. But here it's, it's, it's seen that you are an integral part of building this building. What happens if you have a brick building and you start pulling a brick here, maybe take a brick out here, take a brick out here. Well, eventually you're going to pull out enough that it's not going to stand up very well. The, che- the cornerstone's still going to be there. Jesus Christ is not going to change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But eventually, if, you, if, if enough stones aren't there, that building isn't solid. That does, it doesn't reflect what a building should look like. And so each one of us has this opportunity and responsibility to recognize that we are an integral part of what God is doing here on earth. Um, he starts off here in verse 5 by saying, You also as living stones. Now, why did he say you also? What has he just talked about? He talked about the fact that Jesus was completely rejected by the world, but God chose him. Well, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, to the world, what was going on in their world at that time? They were being rejected by the people around them. They were facing persecution. If we know Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the normal state of being for a Christian is to face persecution. Now, those of us in the United States, we haven't had to face a whole lot of persecution. We might have been made fun of a time or two, maybe had some people kind of look at us and say, oh, your beliefs are weird. I don't really want to have anything to do with that. Um, But we, we don't really know what persecution is. If you were in Mosul, Iraq right now, you would know what persecution is. If you were in, uh, in certain parts of Indonesia or India or, chi- or um, former China, places like that, you would know what perse- we would know what persecution is. But these people were going through persecution for their faith on a regular basis. And, 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 and Peter is saying, yes, you're going through this, but you're doing it the same as your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ did. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so God has chosen them and honored them as living stones in his building because of their faith in the resurrected Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 through 22 also speaks about this building that God is building. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. You see, we don't we look at we talk about the church a lot of times being a building. I'm gonna go to church. I'm going to go to church at Valley Baptist Church, and we have a sign out front that says Valley Baptist Church. We have a nice building we can meet in that thankfully Gunner remembered to come up here last night and thought to turn the AC on, so now it's nice and cool in here instead of 85 like it was when he showed up last night. Um, So it's, you know, we have a nice place that we call a church, but is this really a church? It's not. It's a building. We meet here. The church is you and I. It's, It's every believer who knows Jesus Christ that together makes up the body of Christ, makes up this temple spiritually that God is building. We don't have a temple anymore. We don't need a building to go worship God in because we are the temple. We're the body of Christ. 
And so that's what God is doing through us and in us. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? This tells us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit individually. Going back to Ephesians, it says you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Because how does this work? He says we're living stones. We have, each of us has the Holy Spirit. And God is working through us individually and as a group. That's the unique thing about the church. The church is, is a body and God's working through it as a whole. But God is working in each of our lives individually to fit a certain part in that church, in that body. To, there's a, there, you are a certain shape of stone, and there's only one person that can fill that role, and it's you. God did not put you here on earth just to walk around purposeless and, okay, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and... God has no use for me. No, God has a plan and a purpose for each one of you. And whatever he is doing in your life through the Holy Spirit, it is a role and a job and a, and a unique place that only you can fulfill. And some of, us, some of us know what that place is, others of us don't, and some of us want it to be something that maybe it's not. And so we look around and say, well, well I, I, you know, God can use that person because they're Billy Graham, or God can use that person because they have this great voice but maybe God just wants you to be there and raise your kids and, and you're going to raise a godly next generation. Maybe you'll raise the next Billy Graham. Maybe God has it that that one person you talk to at work that you think it's just a conversation and, and it's, it's just a random conversation that happens and then it's gone. But God has placed a thought in that person's head that eventually turns into another conversation and another conversation. And before you know it, you've, there's a new follower of Christ. All because you took the time to just talk to them about what God is doing in your life. That's just as important as, the, as, as, as a Billy Graham who's won thousands. Because God has put you here for a very specific role and a specific purpose. And he's building you through the Holy Spirit to do that. The truth about the church is that it's a dwelling place for God as seen in this passage. But it's also a group of ministers in that dwelling who offer God the sacrifice of obedience. Each one of us, as we look at our role within the church, can look at Romans 12.1, where it says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. When we sing up here, we're trying to create, we're, we're trying to help people worship God. But in reality, Don can do everything right up here and have the best music picked out and have the perfect people leading it and their hearts can be right. But if individually we're sitting back here and, and, our, and, and we're not worshiping God, we're just saying words, then it's not really worship. Worship is an act of the heart. Worship is what happens during the week when we're out in front of the people around us. It's not, it's not just what happens in here on a Sunday morning. And so each one of us have this role to fulfill within the church. There's one more part to this verse that's really interesting to me. If you go back and look at verse 5 again, it says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. When did the church start? The church, like the church, what we think of as the body of Christ, all believers throughout history, it started when Jesus Christ went back to heaven. 
That's when the church started. The book of Acts is, is the story of how, how the church spread around the world, how the Holy Spirit started indwelling believers, because before that, the Holy Spirit only indwelled for particular um, time periods. But, but after the book of Acts, Holy, as soon as a person believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit came in their life. Well, so the church started all the way back then, but the church is still going on now. And the great thing about the church is, guess what? Until Christ comes back, it's never going to end. That means that it doesn't matter whether you were born in 01 AD or you were born in 2014 AD, you can still accept Christ. As long as you're alive and you're breathing, there will never come a time where you can't accept Jesus Christ, place your faith in what Christ did on the cross, and become a part of his body and, and the church that he is building and become one of those living stones. It's a continuous process. Since the time of Acts when the church began, people have been placing their faith in Christ and becoming another stone in this house that God is building. And that won't end until the end of time itself and the world as we know it ends. And what a great thought. God, you are a part of the same building that Peter, Paul, John the Apostle, Martin Luther, all these great people that we think of through history, you're a part of the same building that God is building on earth as they were. And you play just as significant a role in it as any of those people that God has used in the past, if you will let him work in you and through you to accomplish his purpose in your life. Well, then he goes on into verse 6, and now he's going to start kind of... Remember what we see with Peter every time is he goes back to the Old Testament and he starts pulling these Old Testament passages in to, under, to, to, to explain and defend his premise. So he comes back in in verse 6 and he says, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now this is from... Um, Isaiah 28, 16, uh, that says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And then in verse 7, he, he, he quotes another verse. He says, This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And those words you see in your Bible that are capitalized, that's the verse he's quoting. In, and that's, of course, from Psalm 118.22 that we already quoted. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Then he goes on into verse 8, and he quotes another verse. Verse 8 says, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this a doom they were also appointed. This is from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, where he says, Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel... A stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Israel, of Jerusalem. So, as we've already seen, with every truth that Peter lays out, he pulls from the Old Testament and he grounds that truth in, in the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. Because those were what the people currently had. Um, so, what is he trying to convey with these three verses here? He says... His main thought is for those who accept Jesus as Savior, as Messiah, Jesus is a precious jewel. But for those who don't, he's a stumbling block. Now, what does that mean? It means that if you accept Jesus Christ, to you, 
What does he mean? He's your hope. Peter has constantly said that for those of us who know Jesus Christ, this world isn't our home. No matter what happens here on earth, it doesn't matter because our home is in a heaven for eternity. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. So for us, we should look at our relationship with Jesus just as we would a precious jewel. Now, if you have a, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of precious jewels at my house. I've got my wife a few things, but I would not call any of them real precious. But um, I, I worked for a guy one time and, and he was into investing. He actually invested in like diamonds and stuff. And so he had a safe in the back and he had twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars at any one time in in diamonds just sitting back in the safe. Um, you know, if you have something really precious You put it in a big heavy safe and you protect it and you treat it as if it's precious. You take care of it. You don't let anybody, you know, he didn't even put the $20,000 diamond in his wife's engagement ring because that was an investment that was not to give her as an engagement ring. Um, So, you know, that's what you do with a precious jewel that you take care of. The crown jewels in England are are not just kept on the the queen's nightstand. Um, You know, they, they put them in locked guard towers in the Tower of London. Because they're precious. With Jesus Christ, he's more precious than any of those jewels. He is the greatest treasure that we can ever have. If you spend your entire life going for treasure of gold and money and cars and wealth and houses and land and all that other stuff that is fun to have and nice to have, you will completely miss the greatest treasure that we've ever been given, and that's Jesus Christ. And so he says... That Jesus Christ is as a precious jewel for those who believe. But think about for those who don't believe. For those who don't believe, he's a stumbling block. He's something that you look at and, and it's hard to even put... For those of us who believe in Christ, it's hard sometimes to take ourselves out of believing in Christ and look at him from another way. And, and, but when you do, you see him as, okay, he's a good man, but really, do I should I follow him like that? Do I need to go gather with a bunch of people on Sunday mornings and, and go to a building? That's weird. They, they don't understand it and their eyes are blinded to what that truth is. And ultimately when they die, they have no hope of heaven because they've rejected the greatest treasure that they could ever find. And instead of, and instead of having a hope for heaven for all of eternity, It's a stumbling block that leads them straight to hell because they've rejected Jesus Christ. So that's what he means that it's a a stumbling block. Now, the interesting fact about this and and the hard part about this is look at verse 8. It says, uh, starting with verse 7, it says, This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builder rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense... For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. This is a hard passage here. And um, I think at this point I'd just rather call Gunnar up here and he can explain this. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, and, and this is why. Because all throughout First Peter... When I read it, I see God making choices and saying, I choose you to be my son. I choose you to be part of my family. And when he does that, that means he can't unchoose you. It's a wonderful, wonderful source of hope. But when you read this, 
it, 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 there is some disagreement on exactly how it's supposed to be read. But the bottom line is it sure looks like Jesus is then, like, like Peter is then saying, they were appointed to not believe. They were appointed to stumble. Um, and, and before you kick me out of here, um, let me just say that I think what this is showing is that there is a tension that exists within Scripture between God's choice on the one hand for us to have salvation, but then man's free will to, to say no to God or choose to accept to not believe in Him. And I, you have to take Scripture as a whole. And so for me, when you go back to uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 32, because I do think this is saying uh, that, that basically it says to this doom they were also appointed that they were that they were their disobedience it's it, it is kind of like God orchestrated even their disobedience but here's the thing to keep in mind in Romans chapter 11 and verse 32 it says this so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you they also may now be shown mercy for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. God's plan is not to, is not to say, you're saved, you're not saved. I condemn you to hell, I accept you to heaven. That, I don't believe that's what it's teaching here. It's 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 saying that they, they are shut up in disobedience. It's saying that God God in some ways has orchestrated this. But the bottom line is that at any point in time, if someone who is disobedient, and remember the disobedience obedience thing is acceptance or rejection of Jesus Christ, as we saw last week. This is not just, okay, I obeyed God. It's it's rejecting Jesus Christ. That's what disobedience is. It's it's saying I want nothing to do with Christ and and you condemn yourself to hell. But what what Romans is showing us is that no person who's rejected Jesus Christ is completely is ever beyond God's mercy. The person who rejects Jesus Christ today, if on their deathbed they say, Jesus, I believe in you, I'm a sinner and ask forgiveness for their sins. God's mercy is just as great to that person, no matter what they did with the rest of their life, as to the person who accepts Jesus Christ at 12 years old and continues for the rest of their life to follow Christ. God's, no one, no one is ever beyond God's mercy. And so maybe God is using someone's disobedience at that point, but that same person later on may find Christ and find, see God's mercy and place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. And, and it's not up to us to try to figure that out. That's up to God. Our mission is to be that living stone that, that, that spiritual sacrifice of act of worship so that we show other people who Jesus Christ is. God will draw the person to himself. That's not our job. Our job is to simply present Jesus Christ, to share the gospel, to be that living stone, that witness for him. So I hope that's clear as mud. All right. Um, so until death, no human being is beyond, is beyond God's reach. And then he goes into a beautiful... I think an absolutely beautiful passage here. He says in verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. These are once again quotes from the Old Testament, and they're kind of pulled from this place and this place and this place and kind of pushed together. But basically, you see the same theme in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. It says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Basically, what he's doing is he is taking the same idea. He's showing that in the Old Testament, just as God raised up the nation of Israel to become his chosen people, to reflect him to the world, the church is now spiritually Israel. The church is now the one that God is using in the world to reflect who he is to the people in the world. And so he uses the same, the same verbiage, the same phrases, and he says, you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. But it's not so we can sit here and say, oh man, I must be pretty good. God loved me enough to choose me and save me and make me holy. That's called pride. What is it for? So that you may proclaim the excellencies, the greatness, how wonderful and majestic he is, the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, let me just take a quick, um, go away from here for just a quick minute and make sure you understand too, when you read this and he's applying the same things to the, to the nation of Israel as what he's applying to the church, this does not necessarily mean that the church has replaced Israel for all, all time. Romans chapter 11 makes it clear that there is, there is a, that the nation of Israel is, is in a way still God's chosen people so, um, you know, for if, if that's if you read that into it and that's an issue just to make clear that that doesn't necessarily mean that we replaced Israel permanently. It just means that it's, it's quite obvious in the New Testament that the, the church has the place that is that God intended Israel to have in the Old Testament. Um, and so the church functions in the way that the Israel was supposed to in the Old Testament. How was Israel supposed to function? Israel was supposed to, and they failed pretty miserably, be a city on a hill, as God described them. A a nation that other nations could look at and say, wow, if we follow God, God's going to bless us. God's going to do all these things for us. If we follow the God of Israel, then we're going to have the same blessings they did. It's very interesting to me that in the nation of Israel, God made it very easy to become an Israelite. You didn't have to put in a bunch of paperwork, wait five years, get a green card, and, 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 and then work another 10 years before they finally made you a citizen. You literally could say, I follow Jehovah, I follow Yahweh, and I want to I follow that same God and place yourself under the laws that God wrote for the nation of Israel, and you were an Israelite. And, and he makes that clear in, in, in there. Because God wanted everyone to be able to follow him. It wasn't about one nation. It was about following God. And it's the same for the church now. And unfortunately, just the same way Israel failed, do you think the church always does a great job of showing who Jesus Christ is? No. We fail every day because guess what? The church is made up of people like me. And I fail a a lot every day. And so therefore, the church is made up of a bunch of people that don't necessarily carry out what God intends us to do. 
But it's our responsibility to recognize what God is trying to do and that ultimately we are here to reflect him to the world. He says, um, going back to verse 1, he comes back to that same idea. Remember how chapter 1 and verse 1 started? In 1 Peter 1.1, it says, says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside... uh, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Well, he comes back to that same idea here when he says, you're a chosen people. But that chosen people goes for a very specific purpose. He says here that there's three attributes in mind that God chose us to. Number one, he says you're a priesthood. He says um, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. He chose you to be a priest. There's a reason why we don't need a priest to go to Jesus Christ. You don't need to come to me and Gunner and say, and confess your sins so we can pray on on your behalf. Because the Bible says that we are each priest. We can go directly to God and ask forgiveness for our sins. And we have the promise of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't take me telling you, go do 15 laps around the track and then I'll forgive you for your sins or go do this and I'll forgive you. All it takes is you going directly to God on your be on, on your own, because guess what? Jesus Christ, who you're talking to is sitting there right at the throne of God saying, God, yeah, this person doesn't know what they're talking about because they don't really know what they need, but this is what they need. And this is what you need to forgive them for. And this is what you need. We have a great high priest who's Jesus Christ. And he knows you better than any person on earth does. And he knows me better than I know myself. And so with him as our high priest, we are each individual priest. And there's a, there's a, um, there's a historical Baptist distinctive called priesthood of the believers that is, is an important doctrinal foundation that has come down through the Reformation. That means we don't go through any man. We don't go through any pastor. We don't go through any bishop. We don't go through any priest. Because we have Jesus Christ as our high priest. And we go directly to God through him. And so we we are called to be chosen to be a royal priesthood. And then he says a holy nation. We've already discussed this in detail a couple of weeks ago. God calls us to be a holy people. And when you look at what he's trying to do, he's trying to build this church, this temple for him using each one of us. But if we don't reflect who Jesus is, then how is the world going to truly get a picture of God? The only Bible that most people are going to read is your life and my life. And if we're not presenting him in the way that he's supposed to be presented, then they're going to get a false picture of who God is. And so holiness is about presenting who Jesus Christ is, what he's doing in our life to the world around us. And then he says, you're a people for God's own possession. What does this mean? It means that God is our ruler. It's interesting to me that he's going to follow up this section with a section and a discussion on submitting yourselves to earthly authorities. But before he has that discussion, he starts here and he says that you are a people for God's own possession. Going once again, I think, back to that same idea. This world is not your home. 
Yes, you vote for a governor, you, you, you respond, you live in the state of California, you follow the state laws in California, you live in the United States, you follow the laws of the United States, but ultimately, we answer to God. We don't answer to a president, we don't answer to even our bosses at work. What it does should do, and, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm going too much into the, the next part, but what it should do is change how we live our lives as a citizen of the United States, as a citizen of California, as an employee at work. But ultimately, we answer and we, we serve our King, Jesus Christ. Not any earthly power. And so we are a people for God's own possession, so that he may, you may proclaim the excellency of Him who has called you. And there was a specific purpose in mind. Thinking about this verse, Matthew 5.16 says this, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God isn't doing all this work in your life so you can sit around and feel holy. So you can sit around and read the Bible and live in your little, in your little cubicle where no sin can get in and have our little holy huddle on Sunday morning and then try to protect ourselves from the world so much that nobody sees us. He has placed you in the world to be a light, to be the salt, to reflect Jesus Christ to the people that you come in contact with every single day. And that's the only reason that he's doing this work in your life. And if we go out there and we take advantage of all the blessings that God has given us and all the wonderful benefits of being a Christian and being a believer, the very least of which is the fact that when we die, we get to go to heaven. But we fail to let our light shine before people so that they know who Jesus Christ is, then we failed at our most basic mission. God is building a church, building a building, building the body of Christ here on earth. He's doing it with you and he's doing it with me. And as he works in our lives, we reflect who he is to the world and our building, spiritually the building he's building, will show an accurate picture of who Jesus Christ is. And when people see him, they'll want to know him because they'll see the difference that he makes in your life and in my life. And then he comes and he goes into the last two verses here, which in my mind are the key verses in all of 1 Peter. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, be because, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is how we let our light shine in the world. We let our light shine because our lives are different. This is all culminated in this thought. We're saved we're saved, and because of that, God is working holiness out in our lives. The way he works holiness out is by applying God's word to our life. 
And the way and the reason he's applying God's word and creating us to be holy is because he's doing a work in the world that only you as that spiritual stone can fit that one spot. And and your spot and your role in doing that is to let your light shine before others so that others can see who Jesus Christ is. Now, how do we do this? The pattern for change is right here. He said the pattern for change, and this is the same anytime. If you want your, if we're going to let our lives reflect the holiness that God calls us to, it's going to take this pattern every single time. The first thing we see is change desires. It says, keep your, it says, uh, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. What is lust? We normally think of it in sexual temptation, but, but it's, it's any, any wrong desire. It's something, a desire for greed, a desire for money, a de, a, it's, it's desire uh, for immorality. Whatever it is, it's going to take a changed desire. And the only way our desires change is because we change them from wanting the things of the world to wanting the things of God. And that's why I think he started off this whole passage with the discussion of the Word of God. Remember last week, the more we get into the Word of God the more our desires are going to reflect what God wants. And so we change our desires. And then as our desires change, our behavior changes. It says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may be because of your good deeds and, and as they observe them. As you change your desires and your desires reflect God's desires, guess what? Your behavior changes. As I want to live my life as a husband and a father and an employee and a, and, a, and, a, and a sailor and all these other roles that I fill, as I want to live those reflecting Jesus Christ more and more, then I'm going to change the way my behavior is in each one of those roles. Because ultimately, here's the last part of it. God gets the glory. Keep your behavior excellent. Going to the end, it says that they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Notice who's glorifying God there. Yes, you're going to be giving glory to God because you're living your life in a holy way, but ultimately you're drawing other people to Jesus Christ and they join you in glorifying God. And that's the way the church is built because our lives reflect Jesus Christ. Other people look at us and say, I want what you have. And they begin then to turn their eyes towards Jesus and they begin then to follow Christ as a disciple of Christ and then they begin to reflect the glory of God to the world. And that's the way the church grows. That's the way God is glorified. And that's the way we demonstrate to the world who Jesus Christ truly is. God is in the process of building his church through building the people that make up that church. And as he builds us and we reflect him more and more in our lifestyles, we live out his desire that we draw others to join us in glorifying God and living their lives as followers of Christ and therefore aliens on this earth. I pray that that's your prayer this morning. Let's all join and bow for a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you, we thank you that you have a desire to create here on earth a body of Christ, a building that would reflect who you are. Lord, each one of us as individual believers has a responsibility to grow in you, to apply your word to our life, to reflect who you are to the world around us. I just ask that as a body here at Valley Baptist Church, 
that you would grow us into that reflection of you here in our community in Valley Center and Escondido and anywhere else that, that our members are. Lord, may you raise us up to reflect Jesus Christ, whether it's here in our property or out in town or at our workplaces. May you be honored and glorified in everything we say and do, for it's in Jesus' name. Amen.